finish out that reading a little bit. Um, the sermon is going to be from verse uh, 24 through the end. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands in the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, your teacher will meet you back there. And um, as they're going, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for the marks of indelible grace, grace that will never fade throughout eternity, the marks that wrote us in your hands and on your heart, Lord, that, that caused you to save a people for yourself. And so we're so grateful for that. Lord, we're thankful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the surety that that brings to us. And uh, Lord, I just am so grateful for the opportunity for us to gather on a Sunday morning and worship. Um, with the sure knowledge that you rose again, that you defeated all of our enemies, not these mere flesh and bone things, but the real ones, sin and death and hell. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the resurrection that you attested to us so that we can have surety that you have been victorious. Uh, Father, we want to pray for uh, believers around the world today who are all celebrating um, Easter Sunday. Um, Lord, I think of the churches recently in Sri Lanka that were bombed. Um, and Pope Francis mentioned or said in his message that it is horrible that anybody worshiping anywhere should worship in fear like that. Uh, Father, we're grateful for the peace and the security that we have in this country. And uh, Lord, we pray for those brothers and sisters scattered around the globe who you have not extended that security to, but have extended something even greater, the grace to endure in the face of persecution. And so, Lord, we pray for those churches that they would recover, that they would heal, Father, for the people who've lost loved ones in those bombings, um, that they would um, trust in you in those hard, difficult times. And Lord, we look for the day when Christ will return and we will have peace on this earth. Um, I just don't see it being possible without him ruling over the hearts and the affairs of man. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Holy Spirit, we need you to be with us now as we look at this text. And would you open our hearts and minds to understand the scripture that you inspired? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the traditional greeting, Easter Sunday greeting in the church is, He is risen. He is risen indeed. There we go. We had to get that in somewhere. Um, that, that was how Christians greeted each other. Can you imagine that kind of a welcome? That was how central the resurrection was to the Christian identity. It was, He is risen. That's who we are. He is risen. Uh, so this morning, as we turn to uh, the Gospel of John to look at Jesus' resurrection, um, 
I just thought it was really interesting to start with Thomas. And everybody knows they call him Doubting Thomas, right? So if you look at the graphic, it says, Thomas, Thomas's doubt meets resurrection and truth on Easter morning. And I have to confess up front, I took some liberties with this title. Because first of all, Thomas didn't doubt. He flat out did not believe. He refused to believe. That wasn't doubt. Doubt is, well, it may be possible. I just can't quite settle yet. This is, no, I'm not going to buy it. So Thomas didn't really doubt. And it didn't happen on Easter morning, did it? It was eight days later. It was a full week later when, when Thomas had this encounter. But I hope you give me a little liberty with this. <laughs> because everybody thinks of Thomas as doubting Thomas. Ramey was joking. But doubting is his first name. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it didn't happen on Easter morning, but the events of Easter morning were what what um, brought Thomas to where he was. And so what we're going to look at this morning is Thomas's doubt and the resurrection and truth. And as we look through that, we'll see what Thomas is questioning. What was it that he refused to believe? And then in the end, we get to hear what that has to do with us. How does that apply for us? So the story is pretty straightforward. Jesus, as Richard read, Jesus had appeared amongst his disciples. The doors were locked and he was there. Now, does that mean that resurrected bodies can walk through walls? I don't know, probably. I can't see why not. It could also mean that he was just there and nobody recognized him. Do you remember what Mary said? Where have you placed him? Um, he, his disciples on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him until he opened their eyes. So it could be that Jesus just walked in with the rest of the disciples and nobody recognized who it was. And then he stood up and opened their eyes. That, that's a possibility too. We get a repeat a week later. The same thing has happened. That's what our story said is Thomas wasn't there on that morning. He was missing for some reason. And so since he wasn't there, when he joined them a week later, uh, when they're together, they're saying, we have seen the Lord. We have seen Jesus raised from the dead. And his response is, I won't believe. I refuse to believe this. He says, we have seen the Lord unless I see his hands, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. So this is Thomas's problem is he, he is not persuaded that Jesus is raised from the dead. That doesn't sound like doubt. That's flat out. I won't accept it. The question is, what didn't Thomas believed. What would he refuse to believe? Well, he refused to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Why? Why would he say Jesus cannot be raised from the dead? I refuse to accept that. Um, the, the obvious answer right off the bat is he didn't believe in resurrection. That he didn't believe that people could be raised from the dead. I think that's wrong. And I think when we dig into this a little bit, we're going to find out more about Thomas than we realized just from the, the initial reading. We don't get much about Thomas in the scriptures. Most of the times he's mentioned, it's in a list of names, and that's it. John gives us the most detail, and this portion gives us the greatest amount of, at least, speech from Thomas. We hear, hear about him the most in this little section. So I have to do some inferring from some other sections, but hopefully I'm not going too far afield. So let's take a look at this. What did Thomas refuse to believe? What did he not believe that Jesus was raised? Why might he have not believed that? Um, it could be that he didn't believe that Jesus was, or that people were raised from the dead, but we know that can't be true because the last time we hear Thomas speak was in chapter 11. And what happened in chapter 11 is Jesus had gone beyond the Jordan. He was his disciples were out there where John the Baptist was, and word came to him, Lazarus is sick. Now, Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. 
Uh, and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, were good friends of Jesus. And the most curious thing in chapter 11 is it says, he loved them, therefore he waited two more days. So the word is, Lazarus, your, your, your good friend is sick, he's, he's on the verge of death, and Jesus says, I love them so much I'm going to wait two more days. It sounds cruel. Why would you do this, Jesus? So when his disciples begin to question him about it, he hears that, that uh, it's been the two days has been up, and the, the, question, the disciples uh, are kind of curious of what they're going to do. Jesus says, let us go to Judea again. So they're beyond the Jordan. He says, let's go back. And here's the disciples' response. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? If we go back, Jesus, they're going to kill you. So are you sure you want to go back? I mean, Lazarus is already, you know, dead. It's been two days. He's probably gone. And so Jesus sets things uh, clear for them. He says in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. This is, this is why I need to go back to Judea. And the disciples say, well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. You know, if he's just snoozing, somebody's going to wake him up. You know, if he's, you know, got a fever dream and he's asleep, he'll wake up. And so Jesus says, hold on, you're not understanding what I'm saying. Um, he had spoken of his death. Therefore, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. If you didn't get what I was saying before, let me make it abundantly clear. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that, I may, uh, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So that was the, the, the situation as Jesus has now said he has died, and now it's time for me to go to him. And this is where Thomas the, uh, speaks. He's, Thomas, called the twins, said to the fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So what on earth does that mean? What is Thomas talking about? Well, one of John's writing styles as, as an author is he loves to say something that can have two meanings and both of them be absolutely true, the way he words it. So, for example, in chapter 1, in the prologue, he says that the, the darkness did not overcome him. It can also be translated, the darkness did not comprehend him. Either one is true, isn't it? The darkness didn't comprehend him. He came, and, and people are looking at him and going, he's a, he's a blasphemer. They didn't comprehend that this was God incarnate standing in, fro in front of them. And at the same time, darkness tried to overcome him, didn't it? It tried to kill him. But what are we celebrating this morning? The fact that darkness did not overcome him. So John has this way of saying things in, in, in that two answers could be true. And perhaps that's what's happening here. Perhaps this is more of John's style. Because Thomas says, let us go also that we may die with him. Die with who? Well, the most immediate context is Lazarus. That was the only person that was spoken of just in the verse before saying, Lazarus is dead. So you could say, Thomas is saying, well, let's go die with Lazarus. What does that mean? What is getting, what's he getting at there? Well, if he has faith in Jesus, if he believes Jesus is who he said he is, he looks at Thomas and he says, or he looks at Jesus and said, let's go die with Lazarus because what Jesus is going to go do is raise him and we want to be raised with him as well. So he could be putting his, he could ex be expressing a, a really solid faith so much so that he would say, I would be willing to die because I know Jesus can take care of that. that that's one possible reading if he's talking about Lazarus. What if he's talking about Jesus? Jesus, they're going to stone you if you go there. And Thomas goes, well, let's go get killed too. That doesn't, that's not necessarily a fatalistic throwing up his hands going, well, we're toast. It is a, a bold statement by a man who is 
dedicated to his master. We are going to go where our master goes. If he goes to get killed, we're going with him. So either way we look at this, I think it paints a pretty high picture of Thomas, unless we take the skeptical porch and go and you know have him saying it, you know, in a sarcastic way. Well, let's go die, guys. Come on. Um, but I just I don't I don't know if that really fits the context. So Thomas, it looks like at this point, has tremendous faith in Jesus. Like he he is is dedicated to this master. Let's go. He doesn't say, let's leave. That's happened in the Gospel of John. Jesus had a whole bunch of followers, and he got really hard, and a whole bunch of followers left, and he turns to the disciples, to these guys, and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. So Thomas is part of that group. He's in that kind of a camp. So I think this is beginning to paint a picture of Thomas as a man of tremendous faith. Now, did it mean that Thomas didn't believe in resurrection when he said, I refuse to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Does it mean that he didn't believe in resurrection? I think the same text points out that's not an impossible opportunity, or that's not a possible option here, because Jesus says, let us go to Judea again. He, the disciples are coming with him as they go to Judea. Now, when we get to the story of Lazarus' resurrection, Jesus is the only one mentioned. But of course he is. He's the one who's doing the work. He's the focus of that story. So it's not like we're going to mention all these other disciples and, and gum it up. Jesus is the sharp focus, but the story leading up to that sounds like the disciples went with him. So Thomas is with Jesus when he yells, Lazarus, come out. And he watches a dead man walk out of a tomb. So I don't think that when we see Thomas saying, I will not believe, I don't think we're seeing Thomas say, I don't believe in resurrection. He has seen it happen. This is verifiable. We can tell he was almost assuredly there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus is raised from the dead. It's not because he didn't trust Jesus. It's not because he didn't believe in Jesus' power. I think it's exactly because he loved Jesus so much. I think he's looking at Jesus and saying, God throughout history has raised people from the dead, and he's always done it through a person. There's never been a time where somebody just spontaneously came back to life um, because then there's nobody to say, Yahweh did that. The God of the Hebrews did that. Instead, he did it through Elijah and Elisha. They both raised people from the dead so that the prophets could say, this is Yahweh's power. This is the power of the God of the Hebrews. He raises the dead. So God's history is he has always raised the dead through individuals. And so if I'm reading Thomas correctly, I think Thomas is going, that individual today, now, is Jesus Christ. It can be no other. If I admit that anybody else has that power, then I'm putting them on an equal, equal par with who Jesus is. And I may not fully understand who he is, but I know he is at least that prophet. So Jesus is the one who raises the dead. Jesus is dead. What do dead people do? Not much. So it seems to me that Thomas is saying, if I confess Jesus is raised from the dead, like you people keep telling me, then I'm saying that Jesus is not that person, that there's another person that's equal with him that could come and raise Jesus from the dead because that's how God raises the dead. Does that make sense? I think that's the picture that, that we get of Thomas. Now, why is it that Thomas doesn't believe? There's one component, there's one line of code, there's one little connecting arrow that's missing for Thomas, and he hasn't gotten there yet, but we'll see what it is in a moment. So Thomas says um, he won't believe. Jesus appears to them eight days later, 
And he looks right at Thomas and he says, put your hand here and see my hands. Put your hand in my side. And then he tells him, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, different translations handled that, that phrase, what Jesus just said differently. The NIV says, stop doubting and instead believe. There are about three different really great words in the New Testament for doubt, and this ain't one of them. The words actually, the word for faith in, in, um, in Greek is pistos. And what he actually says is stop a pistos and instead pistos. Stop a believing and believe. Stop unbelieving and be believing. That's what he said. So remember what I said, Thomas didn't doubt? He, he didn't believe. He refused to believe. So Jesus offers him evidence. Here, come and look. Check my hands. Look at my side where the spear went in. See, it's me. He offers him evidence. The cool thing is you notice that it doesn't ever mention Thomas touching him. It, it, it appears that Thomas, you know, for all his, his you know, bragging beforehand, I'm not going to believe unless I put my finger in there. Um, when it comes down to it, he just crumbles. He, he's, he's overwhelmed. He believes. And so what is Thomas's response when he says, stop not believing and start believing? Thomas's response is twofold. Two important statements that are just the weight of the world. The first one is, my Lord. Now, the, the word Lord in the New Testament can mean a variety of things. It can mean a term of respect, uh, sir, um, your highness, something like that, my Lord. That's one way that Lord could be used. Um, uh, the way the Jews used the word Lord was as a substitute for the holy name Yahweh. So whenever they said they see the word Yahweh in the Bible, they would say Lord. And so that gets pulled into the Greek that way as well. Sometimes they'll mention the Lord talking about God. And the way our apostles use it most is when they refer, refer to their master, to, the, to Jesus. He is my Lord. What Thomas is saying here is, you are my Lord. You are the one who died, and now you're standing here. He's confessing, this is the Jesus whom I said I wouldn't believe. You are my Lord. But the second one is that missing component, that missing line of code. He looks at him and he says, my God. Not as a curse word or an exclamation, but as a confession. That was what he had been missing. Thomas is looking at this dead Jesus and saying, nobody else can raise him from the dead because there is no other prophet as mighty as Jesus in these days. And when he looks at Jesus standing there going, but I'm alive, his response is, only God could do that. And I can imagine that everything running through Thomas's head now is all the things that he's heard Jesus say. For example, at the very beginning of John's gospel in chapter 2, Jesus goes in, he cleanses the temple, and he tells them, he tells the, uh, the Pharisees, because they start complaining about it, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then John inserts this brief little explanation of what he said. He sa John says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. I think this is Thomas's moment of that. He, he says, wait, Jesus said he would raise it up. Jesus said he would raise this up. 
People can't do that. Dead people can't do anything. He remembers again in chapter 10 when Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. I think, I think Thomas is looking at Jesus and going, wait, you, you, you have authority to take your life up again? Only God can do that. Only God is eternal. God never dies. You died, and you rose yourself up again. The only answer, the only way for him to get point A to point B is to say, you must be God. That's the only way you can raise yourself from the dead. Human beings don't do that. It's never happened. We would never expect that to happen. And so I think this is that moment, this flash of insight that Thomas gets. It's faith. He has finally believed. And Jesus then tells him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. We don't have Jesus show up and say, here, check my hands on my side. It, it just doesn't happen these days. Now, some people go, well, that's because it's all a myth and it never occurred. Actually, I think it's the most biblical thing possible. If you look at the survey of the scriptures and you say, how often did miracles occur? How often did God show up someplace? How often did Jesus show himself to somebody? The answer is extremely rare. It's condensed in the scriptures because we're telling these stories. But if you plot it out on a timeline, you'll see it's really far between. So we live in an age where we don't see miracles like this happening all the time. Welcome to normal humanity. This is just normal way we live. And God is free to show up and do miracles anytime he wants. We're not poo on that, but we can't demand them from him. So is, is, has Jesus shown up to anybody lately and said, here, check my hands on my side? No. And, and John anticipated that. That's why John records the words of Jesus. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. You haven't seen Jesus and yet you believe. And the great news is you are blessed. You're more blessed than Thomas. Thomas had to have physical proof in order to see and to believe. So what was he missing? Why was it that he wouldn't believe? And what is it that we have that we should believe without seeing? Well, when we talk about faith, when you use the word faith, in the scriptures it has kind of a broad range of meaning. Everything from trusting in Jesus like this, to the body of doctrine which we believe, the faith, to a life changed by faith, faith that has ongoing, prolonged impact in our lives. When we talk about that one moment of faith where we go from not believing to believing, that's what I want to discuss really quick, is, is how do we have faith at that moment? What does that faith mean? What does it look like? Well, Jesus says that we are blessed because we have not seen and yet we believe. So how do we come to believe? We come to believe by trusting the testimony of somebody else. That's what Thomas refused to do. The, the, the brothers had come to him and said, look, you, Jesus is alive. Can you imagine Mary saying, Thomas, I went to the tomb. I didn't recognize him, and he was standing right in front of me. Peter and John saying, we ran to the tomb, it was empty, and then he met us, and we, we, he came and he visited us. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Thomas, we walked with him for hours till we got to Emmaus, and then he disappeared before, before our eyes. He's alive. We have seen him. 
And Thomas listens to all of this and goes, I understand what you're saying, but I don't believe it. I will not believe it until I can see it for my own, myself. Because I, I won't diminish who Jesus is by making him equal to somebody who could raise him from the dead. He refused the testimony of other people, the credible testimony of other people. Dr. Mitch Stokes is a professor of philosophy at New St. Andrew, uh, Andrews in uh, Moscow, Idaho. Unpack that for a moment. New St. Andrews, the old St. Andrews is in Scotland. <laughs> and he's in Moscow, but not Moscow, Russia, but Moscow, Idaho. So, you know, kind of a long way to get around that. But he wrote a book called The Shot of Faith to the Head. Um, and it's a story, basically, he's, he's kind of explaining and giving um, a reason for why he came to be a believer. Dr. Stokes, when he first went to college, he was going into engineering. And there's a lot of people in this room just perked right up, an engineer. Um, but when he got to college, he, he'd been raised in a Christian home. He got to college and he heard all these other conflicting ideas. And he, he was just thrown as far as, how do I believe? How can I believe if all these other ideas are true? And he happened across a philosopher named, named Alvin Plantinga. And Plantinga helped him work through stuff. And so uh, Dr. Stokes changed his major from engineering to philosophy. He's written some really important books. What um, Plantinga says is that uh, testimony is really important. We can't have a society without testimony, without accepting testimony. And what he means is without believing what other people tell us to be true. At some degree, at some place, we have to believe that other testimony. So Stokes says faith is believing by way of testimony, by way of hearing what other people have told us. Um, it's funny because Archie Bunker once famously said, it ain't supposed to make sense, it's faith. Faith is something you believe that no one in his right mind would believe. Archie Bunker was wrong about many things, and faith is one of them. <laughs> That's not what faith means. Faith means trusting, and I add the word credible, the credible testimony of other people. If we just believe testimony in general, we'll get all kinds of weird things. So we have to do some, some level of test, some, some way of checking to see is this reasonable. Now, one of the things you hear today is that science is based on fact. And religion is based on faith, as if they're diametrically opposed. These are two opposite things. I'm not going to bag on science. Science is great. Science has done some wonderful things. But what I will say is they're sneaking faith in the back door without letting us know. So let me demonstrate that really quick for you. Put up that next slide, please. This has been in the news quite a bit. This is the very first picture we have ever seen of a black hole. And it's just a miracle of science that we got it. This is from uh, Messier 87, Virgo A. It's a uh, galaxy that is 58 million light years away. That means it takes light 58 million years to get here. That means that picture is 58 million years old. That's incredible. So how on earth could we see the center of a galaxy? What's at the center of a galaxy? It's hard to tell. You know why? Because there's a bunch of stuff in the galaxy you can't see through. There's a bunch of stars, there's gas, there's you know, all kinds of things going on. So how can we peer into the center of a galaxy? Well, this picture was taken by something called the Event Horizon Telescope. It's an array of about five active, and I think eight or ten, um, you know, on and off kind of telescopes, scattered all the way around the, the world, all the way around the globe. And what they did was back in 1987, for one month, they took every single one of those telescopes and they said, focus on that spot and just record. So as the Earth is turning and facing that spot, all of these arrays are picking up data and just recording every bit of data they can possibly pick up from that spot. 
Now, has anybody poked an eye to a telescope and seen that thing? It never happened. No one has ever seen this. What they did was with, when they got all the data from that telescope, those telescope, or that telescope array, when they got all of that data, they popped it onto a bunch of hard drives. It was um, 960 hard drives with a capacity of uh, six or seven terabytes. So basically we're talking five petabytes of data. Doesn't make any kind of sense, does it? A gigabyte, your phone has, you know, 32 gig or something like that. A terabyte is over a thousand gigabytes. A petabyte is over a thousand terabytes. We're talking five or six of those. The array of, um, of hard drives weighed um, a couple of pounds. It was a big thing. So what they did was they took all of that data, they copied it onto a set of hard drives, they copied it onto another set of hard drives, and they put them on airplanes and flew them in opposite directions. One went to MIT and one went to Germany. Now, at this point, the computer scientists kick in. They've got to take petabytes worth of data and number crunch it and bring it down to something that's manageable and synthesize an image of what they're looking at. So the, the computer scientists take the data, they crunch the data, they boil it down, they have some other astrophysicists explain how to measure the density and the, you know, this, that, and the other, and this is what they produced. That was what we got. I think it's pretty incredible. It, it, it authenticates a lot of theories about what black holes should look like. And do you know nobody has ever seen that? Nobody can ever see that. How do we get there? Well, what you get is you get a bunch of uh, uh, telescopes scattered around the world giving testimony, saying, we promise this is the data that we got off of that little tiny spot in space. Here's the data we got. And you get five or six or seven or eight of those telescopes promising to give good data. And then somebody gathered all that data. And what they said is, well, we promise that we just captured the data and it's, it's intact. We didn't mess with it at all. And then they sent the data to two different labs and got computer scientists involved who said, we promise we are not tweaking this to make it look like we think what it should look like. We are just processing the data that we got. And then when they got all that data, they had the astrophysicists come in and say, we promise this is how a star works. And so this is what we should see here and this is what we should see there. And what we got in the end is the scientific community, me included, a buzz because we got a picture of a black hole based on the credible testimony of tons of people. So if I say that, we, that our faith is based on credible testimony of somebody else, believing somebody else's credible testimony, I'm not saying we are opposed to science. We're doing basically what human beings do. We have to trust the testimony of other people. So with Thomas, Thomas hears the testimony. He hears over and over again, Jesus came, he ate with us, it wasn't a ghost. And Thomas is saying, I don't believe you. He's not saying, I doubt Jesus. He's saying, I doubt you. I, I don't think you got it correct. And see, this is the, the, the situation that people get into today, is when you try to explain the, the resurrection. It, it used to be about 200 years ago, people said, it never happened. Jesus never existed. The resurrection never happened. It was fabricated by the church many years later. Well, no credible historian would ever believe that now. There are a couple of crackpots that do, but nobody. I mean, skeptic, skeptical uh, historians, um, all the way to faithful evangelical historians, nobody believes that it didn't happen. They all look back at that first century and they say, something happened at that point. And then the, the, the way that they try to describe it is, okay, here's what happens. 
um, the disciples watched Jesus die. They had all of their hopes pinned on this man. They were, they were counting on him being the Messiah. He was going to be the one. And so they are all sad and forlorn. They are just wiped out because they, they can't believe that their Messiah has died. And so one of them has a dream. Have you ever had those waking dreams? You wake up when your alarm goes off, and then you don't get out of bed, and you kind of fall back to sleep, and then you have a dream, and it's really weird, and then you wake up, and it seems very real? I, I, let me tell you mine real quick. I had one. I, I woke up feeling, that is the most profound thing I have ever heard. Wow. Just, you know, my, the weight of what I had just had in this dream was like, that was incredible. Remember, you can't say toy before you go chubby. How, how did I not? Wait, what? It was that waking dream and all this, and, and it's so real. It felt so real for a couple of minutes until I recited what the saying was, and I went, that doesn't make a lick of sense. The idea is the disciples, one of the disciples, somebody said, had that same feeling. They, they missed Jesus so bad, they had one of those waking dreams, and they, they believed it. And they went and they told the other disciples, I saw Jesus. He's alive. And the other disciples wanted him to be alive so bad that they began to believe it as well. And they began to see that in their memory. Human memory is horrible, by the way. Um, to have a memory, to store a memory, you have to tweak it every time you recall it. And so memory drifts for a while. Um, when, a couple of weeks ago, when I was in Indianapolis, uh, I met up with my best friend from the Air Force um, a thousand years ago. And we compared stories, because we, we were together for quite a while, and the telling of our stories were different on certain aspects. And we remember them both very clearly. So memory is kind of flaky. So what happens is these, these poor apostles, they heard this, and they wanted it to be true, and they began to believe it, and not because they were lying or being malicious, and then the next thing you know, it exploded, exploded and became a worldwide religion. That's the theory. There are two conversion stories that poke great big holes in that idea. The first one we've already talked about. We've been going through the book of Acts. Paul. Paul in no way, shape, or form wanted Jesus to be alive. As a matter of fact, he didn't want his disciples to be alive. He was violently opposed to that. So the conversion of Paul can't fit into that narrative. It just doesn't work. He, he wasn't on the verge of mental breakdown and, and feeling remorse for persecuting the Christians. He was hot on their trail and ready to get them. So Paul pokes a big hole in it. The second one is Thomas. Thomas had been told over and over and over again, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. And Thomas goes, no, I refuse to believe it. I will not accept it. He had every opportunity to have that kind of moment of, gee, I hope it's true and, and my memory plays a trick on me. But Thomas is too rational. And I think that's exactly why John records Thomas the way he does in this story. Is he's showing us this is somebody who didn't want Jesus to be alive. Now, he, Thomas didn't want Jesus to be alive, not because he didn't love Jesus, but because he loved Jesus, but he didn't understand Jesus. And the reason I say that is because um, there's another place where Thomas speaks. Let's see if I can find it really quick. Um, Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Thomas says to him, we don't know where you're going. How will we follow you? So I think that kind of shows us Thomas didn't understand Jesus. He didn't understand Jesus was going to die and raise and go to heaven and prepare a place for him. So Thomas missed that little bit, and so he couldn't make that connection to, to reality. So while he's being forced by the disciples, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened, he continued to disbelieve. 
He refused to believe. So what converted Thomas if it wasn't the apostles' delusion that Jesus actually raised? It was a physical Jesus standing before him going, here, look, it's me. So those two, I think, poke, that hole, poke a big, huge hole in that delusion. It just doesn't work. If the scriptures are in any way, shape, or form reliable, and by the way, they are, person rise from the dead? No, it doesn't happen. Yeah, that's exactly the point. This is that moment when ultimate reality punctuates our understanding of reality as we've experienced it and says there's more than you understand. Resurrection is something that you can't dismiss, you can't talk yourself out of. The person was dead. He was in a tomb. So the idea that Jesus um, swooned, have you ever heard the swoon theory? He, he, he fell asleep and they, they mistook him as being dead. Uh, belittles the Roman centurion who looked at him and went, yeah, he's dead. Um, this man is an expert in death. And also, he was placed in a tomb underground 42 degrees or so for three days after massive blood loss because they had taken almost all the skin off his back with a whip. They had placed a crown of thorns on his head and had him, hit him on top of the head with a reed. Your head is a huge source of blood loss. If you ever seen a head wound, it bleeds like mad. Uh, before we understood what the brain was, they thought it was a radiator because there's so much blood there. They thought it was just a place to go and cool your blood. So putting the crown of thorns on his head and then whacking him with a, with a reed means more blood loss. And then they haul him out, nail him to a tree where he has more blood loss and suffocates. He didn't swoon. He died. That's the only explanation. So this Jesus, who has now been in the tomb for that long, shows up again alive. That doesn't happen. It's not possible. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's exactly the point. Don't miss that. That's exactly the point, is it doesn't happen. So where does John go with this? The, the very next thing John says, I, I wish I could erase those little headers they put in our Bibles, because this verse should be bumped right up against the previous one. It should just continue right on. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These were written that you may believe. What, what John is telling you is, I am giving you credible testimony. I have written these things down that you may believe. You can trust this testimony. I want you to see. I want you to understand. I want you to believe this. You may believe. And what may you believe? You may believe that Jesus is the Christ. As we've been going through the book of Acts, the apostles used the resurrection of Jesus Christ repeatedly to prove Jesus is the Messiah. None other could fit. No other person can fit in that category. It must be Jesus. Why? Because he rose from the dead. And that was what the promise to David was, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What did, what did Thomas say? My Lord, Jesus is the Christ, and my God, he is the Son of God. Those are the two components. Those are the two things John says, this is what I want you to see and believe. And what's the benefit of it? We look like a bunch of freaks to modern science. You believe in what? An invisible guy in the sky and his magic buddy who came and died? Are you people insane? What, what John tells us is, if you believe this, what you gain is eternal life in his name. 
You don't lose a thing. What you, what you gain can never be taken away from you. So the bombing of the churches in Syria in Sri Lanka, those people, if they're really trusting in Jesus, they didn't lose a thing. They gained. And that's what John wants us to see. That's the, the penetrating reality of the resurrection. It interrupts our reality and says, there's more than you believe. There's more than you understand. And John wants us to know these were written that you may believe. We can know truth, not my truth or your truth. We can know truth because of the resurrection. It has interrupted my truth and your truth and has established the truth. And that's what, that's what happens on Easter morning. And thank you, Thomas, for, for questioning. It gave you opportunity to, to show us what it means to believe in the, in the Christ, the risen one, the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you came back for us, Lord, that you rose to show us that you've defeated death. You came back to show that you atoned for our sin. The Father accepted your sacrifice and has blotted out all of our sin. And Lord, you came back that you might reign. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you physically returned as you physically uh, departed, as you ascended into the clouds. Lord, we look for that same physical body to descend back to the earth. And what Paul tells us is it will be like a flash of lightning from one end of the sky to the next. No one will miss it. Lord, that's possible because of your resurrection. That's possible because you're not dead and decayed. Lord, your Holy One did not see decay. He did not see corruption. But you raised him again and elevated him on high. Lord, thank you for Easter. And we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that they may be amazed at the resurrection as well. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.